want to greet you this morning in the precious name of Jesus. The one who um, Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, he said he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And being found in fashion as of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue should con- I'm sorry, every tongue should confess and every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He made himself of no reputation, even though he was in the form of God. Paul tells us to have that same mindset as we relate to each other. Certainly been a blessing to be here this morning. Um, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men, the psalmist writes. He says that a couple times in that passage. I think it's Psalm 107. I think he just can't understand why we don't. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. I wonder if God doesn't say the same thing today yet and wonder why we don't. But I think we should. So thanks, Levi, for that encouragement. Thanks as well to um, the Sunday school teachers and the um, Lira for teaching here in the adult class, the touch of God. I invite your attention to 1 Corinthians 11. Now, most times I preach a um, topical sermon. I hope that's okay. And this morning I might deviate from that a little bit. I don't know if this is going to be a text or an um, expository sermon, but we'll leave you figure that out. But I want to just look at um, the first part of 1 Corinthians 11. And we know this passage as being the, the one where um, headship is talked about and where the women's um, covering is talked about and things like that. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 to 16. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, forasmuch as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man." Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Now, 
I don't know if I'm going to get just really, really practical in this morning's sermon, but I would like to um, look at some of the things that we can learn about this. Now, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things. This is verse 2. And keep the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. Now, Paul is writing as an apostle. Paul is part of the foundation on which the church of Jesus Christ is laid. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, but the church... The church's foundation is laid by the apostles and by the prophets. So Paul is writing as one of the apostles, and we can understand his writings as foundational to the church. And he tells us to obey these ordinances or these traditions um, or teachings as he has given them to us. I think this is one of those passages that we do best if we come with the attitude of Lord What do you want me to do? Just like Paul did when he was struck down on the road to Damascus. The first thing he called, the first thing he said was Lord. He recognized that there is an entity outside of himself that he needs to bow to. And he said, what do you want me to do? What wilt thou have me to do? I think that's a good question for us to have in our minds as we think about this. Now, there's some things in here. There's some principles. There's some commands in here that don't sit very well with us as humans. We like to have our own way, and we like to, especially these days, we like um, uh, gender equality and all this kind of thing. This is, these are pressures that the world is giving on us, giving, uh, placing on us. It doesn't sit very well with a lot of people. And so many attempts have been made to undermine and discard the validity of this passage. One of the, probably the primary one, especially that um, many Christians have placed on this passage, is what they call a historical critique. In other words, this was just for that place in history. Um, This was an issue that the Corinthians had, and Paul needed to address it. So this was for the Corinthians. Now, I recognize that we do a little bit the same thing sometimes with some passages. How about about the one where um, Paul writes to Timothy, where he says that... um, the cloak that I left with, um, with, uh, the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, he says. He says, when you come, bring along and especially, and bring also the books and especially the parchments. Now, that's something that, that we will say does not apply to us. I don't think any of us was worried about bringing Paul's parchments along this morning. I don't think we were. I hope we weren't fretting over that because I don't think it'd be a possibility for us. But I don't think that it takes much of a theologian, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, it doesn't take anybody brilliant to understand the difference between what Paul was writing to Timothy as asking a personal favor and what Paul was writing to the church. And what Paul writes to the church in Corinth, I think he writes to us Because Paul is one of the apostles. He is laying the foundation of the church. Another question that I would have to evangelicals, there's a lot of of, uh, Christianity that that puts a historical uh, critique to this passage is, why then do we espouse the latter part of this chapter, but not the first part? Communion, the principles of uh, and the practice and the teaching of communion is almost universal across Christianity. And that's in the last half of this chapter. But the first half, the one that I read, 
is widely dismissed. I don't think we should do that. Jesus said that whosoever will be ashamed of him will cause him shame. Whosoever therefore will be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sin in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus also said that whosoever is not willing to accept the cost of following him. In other words, Jesus said, who isn't willing to take up his cross is not worthy to be his disciple. If you are not willing to do what it takes to follow Jesus Christ, Jesus says, you're not willing, you're not able, you're not worthy to be his disciples. One of the costs of following Jesus is that you're going to be different from the world. You will have a different heart. You're going to have a heart of flesh that is pliable and responsive to the voice of the Spirit. You're going to have that stony heart that you did have. You're going to have that taken out. You're going to have a new heart given to you. See, the stony heart was only, be, was only able to be shaped by the tables of stone. But now we have a different mindset. We have a renewed mind that it talks about in Romans 12. This renewed mind is willing, and this, this new heart is shaped and molded by the Spirit of God. This new heart, this renewed mind will, will result in you being not conformed unto this, unto this world. You won't allow the world to put you into its mold. You will have a different focus. You will have different goals. You will have different friends. You will have a different appearance. Our bodies become the temple of the living God. It says in one place, it also says in another place that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And so our bodies will be kept differently than what is governed by the dictates of the world and the flesh and the devil. So what I'm saying is that this passage is going to have some pretty practical implications. Now, the famous verse is here in verse 3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. Famous verse on headship. I'm going to write these down so that hopefully we can understand them and remember them a little bit better. Where do I start? Order of headship, where do I start? Is that where Paul starts? Is that where Paul starts? Okay, what I'm, what I'm after. God is at the top. Christ is next. That's right. But Paul starts, the head of every man is Christ. I, I know this is insignificant, but I want, to, I want us to catch this. Is that Paul addresses the men first. So Paul says, man, and then he says, Christ. And then he says, God. And then he says, woman. Do I have that right? The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. Okay, so I, I mixed it up a little bit. But what I want us to understand is, is that I don't think that this was just an arbitrary order that Paul picked out. In fact, if we would organize something, we would usually start at the top and go on down through. But that's not how Paul starts it. He starts it with the head of every man is Christ. Now, I work on a lot of drawings and stuff like that. 
And when you, um, when you, when you see a diagram or you see a schematic of, of something, let's say that um, you want to do a rafter detail and you're going to have the... Um, You have a rafter detail coming down. You have the face board down here. You have the um, bird's eye right here, or bird's mouth right here, the rafter. And you don't want to, you, you want to stop that drawing somehow. What you do is you put a cut line right through here. Let's call it a cut line right, right here, because this is all the detail you want. But the, the drawing could go on and show the rest of the house, but you don't want to show that. All you want to do is this, so you cut it off with a cut line. So here's the, here's the order again. God, Christ, man, and woman. But I'm afraid what happens is, is that there is a cut line running right across there that is not supposed to be there. So I think Paul addresses the man first, and that's for a reason. The head of the man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now it seems in this headship there is both difference and equality. I'm going to take that cut line back out again if I can. Because it's not supposed to be there. It seems in this headship there is both difference and equality. Jesus is equal to the Father. And I, I read that in, in uh, uh, I opened the, the sermon with that passage in Philippians 2. Where God, where Jesus was equal with God, but Jesus did not think that equality with God was something to be grasped on, was something to be grasped. It wasn't something that he needed to hold on to. All right, even though he was, he could lay it down and, and take a, a human identity. But Jesus was equal to the Father. The name Emmanuel, which was given to Jesus by prophecy in Isaiah, means God with us. Um, John 5, Jesus was healing the man who was sick of the palsy. And... The first thing that Jesus did was said, Sons, thy sins be forgiven thee. And then he healed him of his leprosy and all of, of his palsy. And all of this was done on the Sabbath day. And the Jews, it says they sought to kill him. And the, the reason was, the problem was, is that when Jesus forgave the man's sins, they recognized that forgiveness of sins only lies with God. And Jesus was taking this authority upon himself. To forgive sins. So what Jesus was doing was making himself equal with God. And he was doing this rightly. He was equal with God. He was God in the flesh. He was the word of God incarnate. But the, the, the Jews around there did not accept that. And they went about to kill him. But he was equal with God. But Jesus was also subject to the Father's will in John 6. Verses 35 to 40, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I say unto you, that all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. 
For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all of which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus says, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Now this was prophesied by the psalmist. He said, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened, burnt offering and sin offering for hast thou not required. Then said I, and this is a prophecy of Jesus, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O God. Yea, thy law is within mine heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. So Jesus was equal, but Jesus was also subjecting himself. Jesus' prayer in the garden, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now I'm not sure how all this works out. That even though he was God, he was subject to his Father's will. Now, this isn't the subject of this sermon, but here's a lesson that I wonder if there if we shouldn't take the example of Jesus and subject our flesh to our will, just like Jesus did. He subjected his flesh. He was flesh, God in the flesh, subjecting himself to the father's will. I think we would all agree with that. So there is both a um, equality and a difference. And there is the same here. Now here is where this cut line should also exist. So I wasn't sure if that should stay there if it shouldn't. But there is a huge gap between here and here. But what I want us to understand is, is that just as Christ did the Father's will, so man needs to do the will of God. So in, in that sense, the cut line needs to not be there. But when it comes to the difference between humanity and God, that cut line will still stay there. And so then we come down to um, how that um, men and women are different. Now there's a difference in the function in the church. Women's role in 2 Timothy 2. It says because that um, Adam was first formed and then Eve. And because that Eve being deceived was in the transgression, she fell. Adam wasn't deceived, but he was in transgression. He fell anyway. He, he knowingly did what he did. But it's because of that that Paul writes to Timothy that women are to keep quiet in the church. He says, let the women learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor do usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. And then another thing that the women are supposed to do that the men aren't given an instruction to is to teach the younger women. Uh, Titus 2 says, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Ladies, right here is a function in the church that is your part. And I'm talking to you older ladies. 
It is not the man's part. It is not the preacher's part to teach your young people, to teach your young daughters how to be discreet, how to be chaste or keepers at home and be good, obedient, and, and so on. That's your, that's your function in the church. Now, we espouse the Dordrecht Confession, and there's lots of our churches that do. But here's something that we have never done, and I don't know if any of our churches that we associate or fellowship with have done. And this is in our Confession of Faith. And I think it's biblical. This is Article 9, the last, or about three-quarters way down. And that also the honorable aged widows should be chosen and ordained deaconesses, that they with the deacons may visit, comfort, and care for the poor, feeble, sick, sorrowing, and needy, as also the widows and orphans, and assist in attending to other wants and necessities of the church to the best of their ability. And then it's First Timothy 5, Romans 16, and James 1 are all cited as um, bearing this teaching out. Now, we don't do that, and I'm not insisting that we will, but I'm, I'm saying that um, perhaps we're n- maybe not quite as orthodox to the um, torture confession as we think we are. That's just uh, an observation. Peter's wife's mother, I think, was a very good example. I just, I just enjoyed that in Sunday school so much. How the, As soon as she was healed, she ministered. And Lira said she was probably bustling around there making sure everybody's sandals were clean and so on. That's probably what she was doing. She ministered. That, that word minister there is the same word that we get our deacon, our word deacon from. So right there would be another um, example that... Uh, the writers of the Dortrich could have put in to, um, to back up what they wrote. All right, man's role in the church. I'm not going to say much about this, but man's role is to teach, it's to preach, it's the, the, the role of the bishop and the, the elders and the deacons and so on. That's man's role in the church. But there are also similarities in function. Now, I don't know what you're going to think of me when I say this, but it's implied here and it's very clear that every woman is praying and prophesying in this passage. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. So prayer and prophecy are both, are given to both men and women in this text. In Acts 2, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Amos And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Philip, one one of the seven deacons, had four daughters which did prophesy. So... What, I, what I'm saying is, is that I think this can be done in the context of keeping the teachings of Paul. I don't know why, why that it can't be. I don't think there's a conflict here at all. So I don't know exactly where um, Philip's four daughters prophesied, but I, I would think they did it with the teachings of Paul. But one thing we do know for sure is that they did prophesy. So that's the, that's the function in the church. But then there's also a function in the home. And I'm going to say by extension in society, and that is women's role, is of childbearing and to be keepers at home. And we, we read that passage. I'm not going to say much about that. But then there's, there's men's role is different. That's that um, by the sweat of your face, you're going to provide and you're going to protect. 
Um, this teaching is, is um, very much the same in Ephesians 5. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, there's no cut line there. So also let the woman be to her own husband. There's no cut line here either. In everything, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So the first reason that a man's head is uncovered and that a woman's head is covered is because of this headship order. Verse 7, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, and the woman is the glory of the man. A man shouldn't cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. A woman should cover her head because she is the glory of the man. That, that principle right there attests to our acceptance of the headship order as, as, God, has, as God has ordained it, as God has, has prescribed it. God, Christ, man, and woman. Now maybe, maybe I'm going a little bit out on a limb here, I don't know. But my question, my question was then, is why should a man, in response to this headship order that we are accepting, why does a man cover himself? And why does a, I'm sorry, why does a man not cover himself? And why does a woman cover herself? Why is that particular? Why is it spelled out that way? Well, he says it here, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. My thought is, is that because God is perfect, he is to be represented as being glorious, as being perfect, and so he is fully visible. See, there's, a, um, there's something, man, um, man's uncovered head symbolizes Christ. Woman's covered head um, has to do with the man. Because man is imperfect, he is to be represented by the woman's covered head as being imperfect, inglorious, and so not fully visible. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, and I'm going to subject that to, to the voice of the brothers. Um, but you take that and you think about that. So, because God is perfect, he is to be represented by man's uncovered head as being glorious, Perfect, it's there for us to see. Because man is imperfect, humanity is imperfect. He is to be represented by a woman's covered head. And, and so, um, so he's not visible. So this teaching is not only about order. It is also about the perfection that we find in Christ. That perfection is represented by a man's uncovered head. But at any rate, a man's head uncovered is represented to a woman's head being covered. A man's uncovered head is parallel to a woman's covered head and I think just as important. Just as a woman covers her head, so a man doesn't 
So the first reason that men don't wear coverings and women wear coverings is to show our acceptance and our subjection to the headship order. All right, the second reason, um, verses 7 to 10, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the woman created for the man, but the man for the woman. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. And I think what, what's happening here is, is that our acceptance of, of the created order is a reason for us to accept this teaching and for the women to cover their heads and the men not to cover their heads. For the, for the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. This was the creative order. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he them. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Then in Genesis 2, we are given more detail to that event. How that God caused a deep sleep to come at, to come over Adam and he took a rib out of his side and out of that rib he formed a woman and he presented it to Adam and Adam understood who this is and what this was for because there had not been a help meet found for Adam and now Adam understood that this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called a woman God created a help meet for him And so in um, verses 8 and 9, we see this um, taught by Paul. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. So it's because that a woman was created to be a helpmate for the man, that she is to have power on her head. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head. Because of the angels. Because of this created order. Now I'm not sure exactly what you, what you think of when you think of this power on her head. And I'm not sure exactly what it means either. And there have been a lot of discussions on it. I'm not going to say a lot about it except for... I want to give you some various translations. The NASB says, The woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. The Holman Christian Standard says, This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. The Amplified says, Therefore she should be subject to his authority and should have a covering on her head as a token, a symbol of her submission to authority that she may show reverence as do the angels and not displease them. Now it says... Um, because of the angels. It means just simply for the angels' sake. I'm going to stretch your minds a little bit, and I want to take you back to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 says, um, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, and each one had six wings. With twain he covered his feet, and with twain he covered his face, and with twain he did fly. And one cried to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. The angels cover themselves in the presence of God. 
Now it seems in the old covenant that this was an appropriate response to the presence of God. Abraham, when God came to him to make a covenant with him, Moses, when he met God at the burning bush, and Elijah, when um, he met God in the still small voice. God was not in the wind, he wasn't in the earthquake, and he wasn't in the fire, but he met God in the still small voice. All three of these old saints covered their faces when they met God. But in the New Testament, we can approach God with an open face. 2 Corinthians 3 contrasts how Moses covered his face when he met God to how we have liberty to meet God. He concludes that but uh, with uh, verse 18. We all, with open face, beholding as any glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Hebrews says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in, to help in time of need. That's because we have this great high priest who is Jesus. It is because of who Jesus is, is that we can come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need. But it also says in Hebrews that our God is a consuming fire. Now, if I can put both of those pictures in your mind at once, both this boldness and this freedom, this liberty to come to Christ and to come to God and knowing that God is a consuming fire. So we have these two ideas of, of how we approach God. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, he addressed God as Holy Father. Holiness sets him apart. But his fatherliness brings him close. So maybe to reflect both the openness and the reservation with which we come to God. Men don't cover theirs and women do. Do you understand what I'm saying? And that is because this is how the angels do it. And I did not read that out of any kind of a... Um, concordance or commentary or anything. And I hope I didn't just make that up. I hope we can learn something from that. So, because the angels cover themselves in the presence of God, but yet we can come to God boldly. And you tie that in with the idea that man's head is perfect and women's head is flawed. Man's head can be seen. Women's head should be veiled in the presence of God. Now we have both in the same congregation. And I think that's a beautiful picture. The perfection of Christ, symbolized by man's uncovered head, and the weakness in the humanity of mankind, symbolized by women's uncovered... I'm sorry. Did I say that right? The perfection of Christ, symbolized by man's uncovered head. And the weakness and humanity of man symbolized by the woman's covered head. Gathered together to worship and pray is a beautiful picture of how we come to God in our weakness, but standing forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. And then the third reason that women are supposed to wear a covering and men don't is, is because of a natural revelation. Verses 13 and following. Verses 11 and following. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. 
For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. So this this idea that there are two separate functions and there are there are two separate roles, we have to think of as being complementary rather than competitive. Complementary is not meant as um, if if you tell somebody that you enjoyed their breakfast that they just cooked. That's a compliment because it was really good. The eggs were just like I the eggs were done just like I like them. That's a compliment. But complementary. It's spelled with a with an e. C l c o m p l e m e n t. Complement. It has to do with complete. It describes two things that each adds something to the other and helps make the other better. So men and women play a complementary role. Now nature teaches us that there is a difference between men and women. Romans talks about the things that can be seen naturally. And one of the things that can be very easily seen naturally is this intrinsic difference between men and women. If there wouldn't be this difference, men would the, the race of humanity would die out in 100 years, more or less. If it weren't for the different but complementary roles that each one has. So there is a difference both um, physically and mentally. Physically. I, I looked up the fastest marathon, that's 26-something miles, was run by a man in two hours and two minutes and some seconds. The fastest marathon by a woman was two hours and 15 minutes. The heaviest deadlift by a man is 1,180 pounds. The heaviest by a woman is 672. There's a difference. There's a physical, structural difference. Besides these physical differences, there's emotional differences on, as well. And, and we understand that. Now, I'm not advocating women in the military. I'm not advocating military at all at, at any level um, as, far as, as far as the church is concerned. But one of the reasons that many, many militaries in the world are mixing women into their troops is because they present a kinder and a gentler and a more sensitive uh, front line than men do. I'm not advocating this. I'm just making an observation. There is, of course, some overlap. There are some women who are bigger and stronger than, than some men. Whoever this woman was that deadlifted 672 pounds is way stronger than I am. Whoever this woman was that ran a marathon in 2 hours and 15 minutes is way faster than I am. All right? There is overlap. But the general rule is unmistakable. And it's irrefutable. But this difference is a gift, and this is a blessing. And I think it's fascinating how that the, in the world around us, race and culture have become a thing of pride. To violate one's race, you know what Black Lives Matter is, to violate one's race, and sometimes even a culture, is completely unacceptable. But gender and gender roles which are much clearer, and they're, you can't even cross them without some kind of perverted and artificial means, they have become blurred by many. 
Now, I'm talking about things that, that nature teaches us very clearly. But that man was to violate. There was, a, there was a woman from Europe somewhere, I forget where she was from, one of the Scandinavian countries, who identified as a cat. I didn't see this, I just read about it, or heard about it. And she was being interviewed by someone, um, uh, TV cameras or something. And while she was being interviewed, there somebody was, was leading a dog along on the outskirts of, of, of where she was standing. She turns around and, hiss, and hisses at it because she identified as a cat. Uh, this spring, there was an article um, in the news that I read that there was a, there was a man from France who was speaking at a university in Arizona who identified as a hippopotamus. Look, somebody, I don't know if they're believing this lie or not, but they're presenting this lie. But this is what man is trying to do. While the things that God has said don't matter, where he has said that he has made of all men one nation and one blood, but he has also said that there is a difference between male and female. The world has inverted this thing and changed it all upside down. In God's economy, race is nothing, but gender roles in, in some ways are important. The world has inverted this. Oh, another one was that I thought was kind of interesting as far as culture was there was these two women from, um, I think they were from Washington State, uh, were down in Mexico, and they, they learned a, they picked up a recipe from some lady down there who made these outstandingly good tortillas. And they went home and copied these tortillas and started a restaurant uh, using this recipe that they had got from this um, Latin American culture. And there was a real row about these two women um, appropriating something from another culture and because this was uh, Hispanics, and they were selling it to white people. And so what they were doing is um, somehow exploiting the Hispanics and by, by selling um, their same kind of tacos or tortillas or something to the white people that were living around them. And there was a real row in the news about this. That's what I'm saying, is that the world has, has made things that are not important, and has elevated them to an important level, while the things that God cares about and the things that are written in the irrefutable laws of nature, man has upended and tries to their valiant best to, to pervert and to equalize gender and gender roles. But as Christians, we accept and we treasure and we... Excuse me, we accept and we treasure and we value these differences as a divine blessing. Who of us can imagine life without the nurture of a mother? And when discipline is needed, needed without the steely hand of a father. without the sensitivity of the feminine and the invigorating challenge of the masculine. We accept these differences as a divine blessing and we express our acceptation 
of this difference by a woman wearing a covering and a man not wearing a covering. But in that difference, there is equality as well. We, we discussed the difference in the equality here, but there is also a difference and an equality here. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male nor female. There is neither bond nor free. Okay, in Christ, it makes no difference whether you are from Washington State or whether you are from Mexico. It makes no difference if you're Jew or Greek, male or female, or bond or free. There is equal access to the throne of God. There is equal access to the gift of salvation. Man's uncovered head and the women's covered head testify to our acceptance of these truths. Then there's another lesson that nature teaches us and that man should wear their hair short. For a man to have long hair is against the natural revelation of the will of God. For a woman to have short hair is also against the natural revelation of the will of God. If you don't believe that, if you don't believe that women naturally desire to have long hair, just look through the insert in the weekend paper and see how many advertisements for ladies' shampoo and hair conditioner are in that little insert. Well, it's probably half of it. Sell it to men. I don't think it's going to work. Men have shampoo. That's it. So there is an intrinsic nature-written principle that women like to have long hair. And this hair, it says, is given for her for a covering. Verse 15. But this is not the covering that is spoken of in verse 6. The text makes no sense for it to be read that way and tried sometime. You just can't put it together if you're trying to um, blend verse 6 and verse 15. So verse 15 is another kind of covering, which is her long hair. Some observations. The head of every man is Christ. This phrase is mentioned first. Paul didn't start from the top down. He didn't start from the bottom up. I think he started where the greatest need may be. Brothers, this teaching is for us. If we have any expectation of the women being in subjection to the men, we must first be subject to Christ. I read this saying before, or this writing before, and I'll read it again. This is by the, the, um, the famous, perhaps notorious Jacob Ahmed. We will not heed any counsel of men, long-established customs or current practices, if they are not founded on the word of God. For our faith shall be pure, undimmed, and established solely on the word of God. That is our reference point. That is who we bow to. That is our head, which is Christ. If we're going to venture to say anything like Paul does in verse 1, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. This lays the burden of this passage square at our feet. Another observation. It seems that the teaching of the covering is weakened by women who wear the covering but don't have an attitude of submission to their husbands. I think this is a reproach to the teaching of the scripture. The inner submission and the outer covering are together are a powerful testimony of the beauty of the created order. And I don't think any of us has any business in saying whether the inner submission or the outer covering is more important. As far as I can tell, they're both taught. All right. So the 
Even if a woman is not submissive, gives no one any right whatsoever to not wear a covering. That's what I'm trying to say. Both of these teachings are pertinent. They're both valid. Another observation. It seems that how a covering is worn will often reveal the wearer's interest. Let me just throw this out. You take this for what it's worth. Perhaps the ratio of what is covered versus what is covered. I'm sorry. Perhaps the ratio of what is covered versus what is not is covered is telling. Brothers, maybe a little a, um, something for you to think about. Perhaps how little of a reason it takes for you to wear a hat is also telling on how uh, pertinent you believe this scripture is for you. Here's another observation. It seems strange to see fads and coverings because coverings are a sign of biblical submission. Whatever fad is influencing the wearer, whether it's the jacked up styles of 25 and 30 years ago or the sliding off the back style of maybe today, it often reveals the heart of the wearer. I understand there are social pressures and there's all kinds of things that, that we come against. But look, here it is. Let's do this joyfully. And when we're doing it, let's just do it. Let's forget about some of these social pressures and all this kind of stuff. So I give you these words. Not to lay a foundation for a practice that we should observe but aren't. Because we are but rather to encourage and to reinforce and to build up this valuable treasure that we have already been practicing. And I bless you, sisters, for it. It's a blessing. And you brothers, in your submission to Christ and so on, this is a blessing. It is only my desire to make it more precious to us. Let's kneel for prayer.